theoretically, the sanctions could be lifted for any number of reasons. And if those sanctions are lifted, then anything that's frozen under the sanctions would revert back to the original owner. That's normally not how these things work out. There's really not a lot of examples of just rich, <laughs> rich guys, you know, who find themselves on the wrong side of an issue. I do not think that it's going to be very easy for these individuals to get their property back ever, really. Welcome to the News Not Noise podcast. I'm Jessica Yellen. We've been hearing a lot about Western sanctions against Russia for its war on Ukraine, but they haven't stopped the Russian assault. So what's the point of the sanctions? When are they supposed to kick in? And how do we know if any of them are working? I have a ton of questions, and I'm sure you do too. My guest today, Daniel Glazer, has answers. He is the former Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes at the U.S. Department of the Treasury in the Obama administration. He personally headed the office that designed sanctions against North Korea and Iran, among other countries. Today, we break it down. He explains why he believes sanctioning Russia's central banking system will prove to be the most crippling blow. How the U.S. decides which oligarchs to sanction what happens to their super yachts, and what more can be done. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Daniel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Jessica. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with the basics. Russia is bombing hospitals. They are killing civilians in Ukraine. The West is sending arms, but we're also engaged in an economic war with sanctions. The reality, though, is that sanctions won't literally stop the bombing, and it seems that they haven't stopped Putin's ability to fund his war efforts. So can you explain to us how are these sanctions meant to work, and historically, have they been successful at interrupting conflict? I do think these sanctions are effective, and I do think that they're working. As you point out, it's very, very important that we identify what we mean when we ask the question, are sanctions working? As you point out, sanctions are not a one-to-one -one replacement for military engagement. When NATO made its decision not to militarily intervene in Ukraine, there were certain inevitable consequences from that. Sanctions are not a one-to-one -one replacement. Sanctions, as you point out, Jessica, are not going to turn around tanks in their tracks. They're not going to stop cities from being shelled. They're not going to stop Russian troops from committing atrocities. They're not operational in that sense. What sanctions are designed to do is to create leverage for the diplomats to ultimately try to settle this conflict on peaceful terms and on hopefully terms that are advantageous to Ukraine and advantageous to the West. That's, for example, what they're designed to do with Iran. They were designed to get Iran to the nuclear negotiating table. Whether you agree with the nuclear deal with Iran or disagree with the nuclear deal on Iran, what everybody agrees is that Iran came to the table for sanctions relief. That's an example of sanctions working. And then the politicians and the diplomats have to do their part by negotiating a good deal. Likewise, what these sanctions are designed to do, and they're really quite explicit, is attack the Russian economy to raise costs over time for Russia for engaging in this type of conduct. And ultimately, the hope is that Russia will, when it sees these calculations, will be willing to bargain its position in Ukraine for some sanctions relief. That's what the hope is. Those types of things, though, don't work right away. Those things only work over time. And in the meantime, what we're left with then is the heroic resolve of the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian armed forces in fighting the Russian invasion. You say that we have to understand it takes time. Can you give us a sense of a time horizon? When should sanctions start to take a bite out of Putin's ability to fund this war? 
Russia is going to be able to fund this war. There's not going to be any time soon where they're just going to run out of money and can't continue to you know, pay troop salaries or buy spare parts. It's not realistic to expect that. Even with Iran, it's the other example of a relatively significant economy that the United States and its allies have targeted. We want to impose these sanctions so that Iran has less money to spend on its nuclear program, less money to spend on Hezbollah. Iran always had enough money to spend on its nuclear program and Hezbollah. What it didn't have is enough financial and economic wherewithal to keep its economy providing the types of goods and services to its people that they expected. And that's ultimately what brought Iran to the table. And that's ultimately what will bring Russia to the table. Meaning that it then takes a political toll for Putin, that the pressure is turned up to such a degree that either the people or some other elites force a change. So then how long could that take? Are we talking months, possibly years? I don't think that there's going to be a quick resolution to this. I think that what we're seeing right now is Russia being disconnected from the international financial system and the international economy. And I think it's a tragedy for the Russian people. And I don't think the Russian people fully understand what they're in store for. And then you get to the $64,000 question, which is energy. And when the West starts to wean itself off of that, and Russia is going to find itself in a very, very difficult situation indeed. So far, there have been multiple rounds of sanctions on Russia from the U.S. and from its allies. The ones generating the most public interest are the sanctions imposed on oligarchs. And I'm guessing they may be the least effective, you tell us. But how do we decide which oligarchs to target? How do we find their assets? Well, that's what we have in place now in the United States. There's a task force led by the Justice Department that is specifically targeting oligarch assets. And there are similar task forces in Europe and in other countries as well. I think the sanctions against the oligarchs are going to be very effective at hurting the oligarchs. I certainly wouldn't want to be a a Russian oligarch right now with the Justice Department because they're very good at what they do, you know, searching for my yachts and my works of art and the other expensive things that I had. What I question, and I'm not saying it means that we shouldn't do it, the theory behind it is that if you apply this type of pressure to people who are influential within the Kremlin, that their lives will become so difficult that they will implore Vladimir Putin and other decision makers change their policy. I think that's unlikely. I think it's unlikely that they would have that kind of sway over Vladimir Putin. I think it's unlikely that Putin really cares whether Roman Abramovich has a super yacht parked in, you know, wherever it is he parks it or not. I think ultimately what's going to be effective in really affecting calculations is the broader financial warfare and economic warfare you're seeing. But I do think certainly a lot of these guys had it coming to them in the first place. And to the extent that they're profiting from their relationship with the Kremlin, they deserve to have their assets gone after. So let me understand how it actually works. How do officials decide who to sanction when you look at oligarchs, for example? And what is the controlling authority? What gives these governments the right to seize private property? There's a couple of different authorities that government authorities could be acting under. With respect to sanctions, most U.S. sanctions are issued under a law called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IEPA is what it's called for short. And IEPA gives the president of the United States the authority to declare a quote-unquote international emergency with respect to just about anything. So the president could declare an international emergency with respect to terrorism. Or he could declare an international emergency around developing a nuclear weapons program. Or he could declare a national emergency with respect to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Once the president does that, he issues an executive order that outlines the parameters of who is targeted within that particular program. And one criteria might be Russians who are close to Vladimir Putin or Russians you know, who are profit from their relationship with the state. At that point, it's turned over to the Treasury Department to implement So the Treasury Department will then issue regulations through the Office of Foreign Assets Control, 
OFAC, which is a part of the Treasury Department. They devise a list of names and they have to have some evidence for that. And I could talk about how they devise those evidentiary packages, but it involves intelligence and involves law enforcement information. It involves anywhere they get that information. And then any U.S. person is required to freeze the assets of anybody who's on that list. Any U.S. person, meaning if I'm doing business with an oligarch who's on that list, I have to freeze the assets I have from them. It's not just government entities. Correct. Any U.S. person means any U.S. citizen anywhere in the world, any U.S. company anywhere in the world. And there's two components to most sanctions. It's a transaction ban and an asset freeze. So you would be prohibited from engaging in a transaction with a designated individual or entity. And if you had in your control any of that designated entity's assets, you would have to freeze them. And then I'm responsible for holding them, I assume. How this mostly plays out is in the case of bank accounts. The bank would be required to freeze that account and hold on to it. So when these international task forces seize yachts and more than a dozen super yachts have been seized, when it's under seizure, who owns that yacht? To use the technical term, if the yacht is frozen under a sanction, then technically the title to that yacht continues to belong to whoever the owner is. Now, if the Justice Department is involved and they are pursuing some sort of criminal investigation and criminal charges against that individual, then the Justice Department will seize that yacht pursuant to U.S. asset forfeiture laws and the U.S. government would take possession of that. But that's not a sanction. That would be a Department of Justice criminal or civil action. Crazy question, but these yachts require an enormous amount of upkeep constantly. So if they've been taken out and they're like on blocks on a dock somewhere, is somebody taking care of these yachts or are they going to like fall into disrepair? The U.S. government has a whole program set up to take care of the assets that it has under its care. When the Justice Department does seize a car or a boat or something that they could sell, they will go ahead and sell it. And a lot of that money is then reinvested into maintaining the program. So in other words, somebody's paying for the upkeep of these yachts right now. Yeah. I mean, there's been times <laughs> where the Justice Department has seized like horse farms, the drug dealers have owned, and they've had to feed the horses. Oh my God, that's amazing. Like that. It's a whole big thing. Okay. So that gets me to my next question, which is these things are of enormous value. They're frozen, not seized. But is there a point in time where all these governments collectively could decide to f- seize these properties and and sort of sell all the yachts and planes to fund refugee resettlement and the rebuilding of Ukraine? Under the way the law currently works, if the U.S. government is going to take title to these, which they would need to in order to sell them, they would need to be able to link them to some sort of criminal activity, which could be foreign corruption. If they are frozen simply because somebody's name is on a list, then they cannot take title to that. But if they do prove criminality, they could seize and sell the assets? The Justice Department does that all the time, not necessarily in the Russia case, but especially in cases of foreign corruption, they will seize assets, forfeit those assets and share those assets back with a foreign government. Have you ever seen a case where assets get frozen and then the sanctions are lifted and they're made whole? Or do these end up sort of bankrupting or meaningfully changing the circumstances of these individuals over time? Theoretically, the sanctions could be lifted for any number of reasons. And if those sanctions are lifted, then anything that's frozen under the sanctions would revert back to the original owner. That's normally not how these things work out. Most examples of individuals being targeted are either individuals who are you know, criminals, who are fugitives from the United States, terrorists, people like that who wind up staying on these lists. So there's really not a lot of examples of just rich, <laughs> rich guys you know, who find themselves on the wrong side of an issue. I do not think that it's going to be very easy for these individuals to get their property back ever, really. Do you believe them when they cry poverty? Don't they have money hidden away places? Yes. I don't believe them when they cry poverty. No. 
Okay, let's move on to some of the financial sanctions against Russian financial institutions. They're still not disconnected from the international financial system. In a broad sense, can you give us a sense of what Russia can and can't do right now? Sure. In in terms of banking, there's been seven Russian banks that have been subject to broad sanctions now, including two largest banks in Russia. So I don't want to downplay the importance of the actions that have been taken after Russian banks. But there are uh, plenty of Russian banks that there is no prohibition against doing business with right now. That said, there's a tremendous reputational risk of doing business with Russian banks. Many, many Western companies, including Western banks, are voluntarily getting out of their Russia business and getting out of doing business with Russia. Tremendous amounts of money and time and effort and resources by bank compliance departments all over the world are being spent trying to disconnect themselves from Russia. A, because there are so many Russian entities which are being targeted, including Russian banks. And B, there's the expectation that there's more to come. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Can you give an example of what they can't do now that they could have done three months ago? The most significant measure that's been taken against the Russian economy has been the sanction against the Russian central bank. There is a prohibition, full sanction, against a, a G20 central bank. It's really unprecedented. And so it is illegal with criminal penalties for any U.S. person and likewise under European law for European citizens and English citizens under U.K. law. Uh, to do business with the Russian central bank. This makes it very, very difficult for Russia to use its foreign reserves to prop up the value of the ruble, because the way they would do that would be to engage in in transactions to buy rubles. They're doing certain things here and there now to create artificial demand for the ruble, but they're not going to be able to maintain that. And over time, the ruble is going to collapse. They will not be able to maintain that. That's probably the most important thing that the West has done with respect to Russia. They're also making it very difficult, if not impossible, for Russia to service its official debt, driving the Russian bonds into junk status. And they're very likely to default at some point in the time in the not too distant future. Again, disconnecting Russia, essentially, from being able to raise money on international capital markets. As more and more banks do get added to the list, and I think that they will, Russia is going to become more and more disconnected. I really think you're going to see, we are seeing a decoupling of Russia from the international economy. This is going to have direct impacts, like I'm saying now, on the ruble and on Russian debt, but it's also going to have broad impacts on the Russian economy from interest rates, which are already skyrocketing, to inflation, to unemployment. It's a catastrophe. For Russia. So can you paint a picture of how this might impact your average Russian small business owner? They can't get access to dollars anymore. The dollar is the global reserve currency. If you're doing business globally, you're doing business in dollars. For the most part, they're not going to be able to do that. They're not going to be able to get access to Western Europe, mar- European markets, to uh, Western hemisphere markets. Yes, they'll be able to do business with China. 
if what Russia wants is to be, uh, you know, a vassal to China, an economic vassal to China, China will probably be willing to uh, draw up terms favorable to China for Russia on that. Their cost of borrowing is skyrocketing. The value of the ruble, the money that they have in the banks are becoming increasingly worthless. You know, this is real financial warfare that's being waged on Russia. And I think that you're right to point out that the ones who are, are going to pay the immediate price are the Russian people. As an average Russian individual now, you can't use a lot of the payment systems that used to work, right, that are connected to the West. What are the other ways an everyday Russian's life might have changed? There's going to be fewer goods on the shelves. The goods that are on the shelves are going to be more expensive. The same way that economic problems affect anyone are going to affect them, but times 100. Inflation, unemployment, slowing down of economy, they'll face a a recession. And as they say, it's a recession if uh, the other guy doesn't have a job. It's a depression if you don't have a job. So I think there's going to be a lot of them who are going to have real problems. Let's talk about oil and gas, because arguably that is the biggest lever that Europe still has, I think, to use against Russia. So far, they've opted not to shut down energy imports altogether from Russia, but that's a discussion that's sort of in the air right now. First of all, could Europe shut down energy imports from Russia? What are we talking about when we say that? So let me just, because I do think the West has done something kind of clever. The way they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, and they're not going to be able to do this forever. But by targeting the Russian central bank and by shutting down the ability of the Russian central bank to access its foreign reserves and by continuing to insist that the West pay for oil and gas in hard currency and dollars, essentially, they're allowing Russia to continue to sell their energy. But at least theoretically, they're not allowing Russia to access those funds. So Russia will continue to build up these reserves, but the central bank can't access them to spend those reserves. That's one of the important theories here behind the economic attack on the central bank. At a certain point, though, that's not going to be good enough. If the foreign reserves continue to grow, Russia will figure out ways to take advantage of that situation. I would argue that at a certain point, very soon, you want to go to to energy. As you point out, the West has been uh, very hesitant to do so because generally, even the United States, that would cause an increase in energy prices. The United States is not directly dependent on Russia for energy, but Europe, especially with respect to liquid natural gas is. Now, the Europeans have crossed the energy Rubicon, so they have targeted coal. So in the last round of sanctions, the Europeans banned the importation of Russian coal, which is, I understand, about a a three or four billion dollar industry. So that's a start. The big issue is oil and liquid natural gas. Now, the Europeans are not as dependent on oil as they are on liquid natural gas, which is why when you read the newspapers, what everybody's talking about in Europe is oil. You only hear them talking about oil. And with respect to oil, there is a divide within Europe right now as to whether now is the right time to do it, given the impact that it will have on on European energy markets. There are ways that Europe could do this. And again, you could look at what happened with Iran when the West targeted Iranian oil. So you could do it in such a way that would still allow pipeline importation of oil from Russia, but go after Russian ships carrying oil. You could do it in a way that allows for a gradual reduction over time. That's how it worked with Iran. Countries needed to show that they were significantly reducing, but they didn't have to get down to zero uh, you know, right away. There's any number of things that the Europeans can do. And I do think eventually you'll see that type of thing, targeting Russian sales, targeting Russian shipping, targeting Russian ports, you know, targeting countries in a way that causes them to significantly reduce over time. I think that's what you'll see with oil. You've mentioned that sanctions are um, easier to impose than to lift. So if the world ends up weaning itself largely off of Russian oil and also starts to isolate the Russian banking system, where does that leave Russia in two years? In a really bad position. I think this is the new normal. I don't think that 
there's going to be a switch flipped in a month or two months or six months and everybody forgets about what happened. Put aside sanctions for a second. Just the fact that all of these uh, companies have to exit the Russian market, oftentimes losing major investments that they made. It's not easy to just step back into that and then a decision has to be made. You know, with respect to a country where there's massive corruption, with respect to a country where there's not respect to, for property rights or the rule of law, how much are country companies going to want to go back? Yeah, companies will go back. This is a real decoupling that we're seeing. When Iran entered into the nuclear agreement with the Obama administration, they thought that they had bargained for massive sanctions relief. They didn't get that sanctions relief, not because the US and its allies didn't lift some sanctions, but it's because the international financial system didn't welcome Iran back into the international financial system. I think you're going to see the same thing with Russia. We are seeing a long-term decoupling of Russia from this. It's not to say that over time it can't be fixed, but I don't think over time it could be fixed with the you know, with the current leadership that's in Russia. I just don't I just don't see how that happens. When you say decoupling, what that means is it's not just will these sanctions be lifted, but basically will businesses be gun shy about racing in to do business again in an autocratic society that's kleptocratic and where sanctions could someday be imposed? Is it sort of like there's a now a fear or shame factor around doing business with Russia in the future? Absolutely. The Germans are cutting a deal with the Qataris to get their LNG from Qatar. I heard that the Italians were talking to, I forget which North African country, about getting their LNG from North Africa. I'm sure the Qataris and the North Africans are, are going to be very happy to pick up that slack. And the demand is just not going to be there. And for Europe, this has now become a, you know, a, a strategic issue. They rightly don't think they could safely rely on Russia as a energy supplier for their own national security reasons. And we've seen it. They're already hamstrung by what they can do to confront the greatest crisis in in, in Europe in, in decades. And the Europeans are hamstrung in their ability to react because of their dependency on Russian energy. The Europeans understand that. And the Europeans, I don't expect, will allow that to happen again. You know, that's a long-term impact for Russia. What's China's role in all this? Are they in any way propping up the Russian economy? China could help keep Russia afloat. They could help take the sting out of some of these measures. But there's a reason why Russia and Russians want to do business in London and Frankfurt and New York. It's, uh, you know, China is not a one-for-one replacement with the West. China needs to, the Chinese businesses need to be willing to take rubles. They need to be able to do something with those rubles. It's not as simple as saying, oh yeah, come to China, we'll do this business. And I'm trying to, I'm sure China will be willing to do it. They'll be willing to do it on terms very favorable to themselves, uh, very unfavorable to Russia. And Russia's, you know, again, I don't know, I don't think this is how Russia likes to see itself, but Russia's setting itself up to be the junior partner in a relationship that's going to be very, very advantageous to China. And what about crypto? Is there a possibility of Russian money being hidden in crypto or is that unknowable terrain? I don't think it's unknowable terrain. The Russians cannot run their economy on crypto. There's literally not enough crypto in the world for that. So that's not really what I think the concern is. The concern is with respect to individuals. So oligarchs, individual Russian leaders, who may want to move their money around and will look for ways to do that anonymously within the international financial system. And crypto does potentially provide them another way of doing that. There are plenty of ways for them to do it already. Crypto provides them another way of doing that. Broadly speaking, is there more you think the U.S. should be doing? I don't want to sound uh, overly critical because I, I really do think it's remarkable how quickly they've escalated from the first invasion up until now in really a matter of six or so weeks. They've really done an extraordinary amount of measures 
And they've done it while keeping the alliance together, keeping the Europeans on side when there's a lot of, as we were saying, disagreement within Europe about what's maintainable. So I think it's quite impressive. If you want to sort of look at what are areas for there to be really serious measures taken to increase the pressure on Russia, I would say three things. One would be energy. And we've just talked about that in particular oil. Second, and we've also talked about this, would be stepping up the pressure against the Russian financial system and really disconnecting more Russian banks from SWIFT and targeting more Russian banks directly and really taking Russia offline financially. And then third would be what are called secondary sanctions. So that's where the US or Europe would say to any bank, we'll just talk about banks, but anybody, any company, anywhere in the world, you have to choose us or Russia, essentially. If we designated a Russian bank, say Spare Bank, which the US has designated, if they applied secondary sanctions to Spare Bank, not only would U.S. persons be prohibited from dealing with Spare Bank, the U.S. would be putting anybody anywhere in the world on notice that if they did business with Spare Bank, the U.S. might target them too. The U.S. has done that only in a very few cases, but it has done it before. That would be a massive, massive escalation. Do you think these sanctions, even if we impose the ones that you're talking about, would this together be enough to stop Russia's war on Ukraine? I think it would be enough to be a calamity for the Russian uh, for the Russian economy and, and for the Russian state. I don't think we should underestimate the ability of autocrats who are willing to use violence on their own people to maintain themselves in power for extended periods of time. So I don't want to overpromise on what sanctions are capable of doing. I think sanctions are an important part of what needs to be a broad approach that includes providing military support to Ukraine, that includes diplomacy, that includes other efforts to keep the Western alliance together. I think all of that over time will lead to a favorable result in Ukraine, but I don't want to overpromise what sanctions are capable of. They're necessary, but they're not alone going to deliver a result. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today and for the work you've done on this front. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening today. If you liked what you heard, Please subscribe or follow this podcast on your favorite podcast app. And you can follow me at Jessica Yellen on Instagram and Twitter. Find me at News Not Noise on YouTube and TikTok. You can subscribe to the News Not Noise letter at newsnotnoise.bulletin.com. And you can support this work on patreon.com slash newsnotnoise so I can keep giving you information, not a panic attack. 